may invite you to open the Bibles in your pews or if you brought a Bible from home to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking in the 15th chapter of the Gospel together this morning. Throughout uh, the season of Lent, starting back in March and April and through the end of this month, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke and looking particularly at tables and meals and how Jesus interacts uh, around those tables with, with Pharisees and religious leaders, with tax collectors and sinners. And starting last week, we... We wanted to turn our attention, uh, in particular, not to, to actual stories about meals Jesus ate, but stories Jesus tells at meals, parables about tables. We looked at Luke 14. Last week, we're going to look at Luke 15 today, and then Luke 16 um, next Sunday. But I think there's, there's one thread, at least in my estimation, that, that runs through all three of these parables in consecutive chapters. And that, that is that in each case, there's someone missing at the table in these stories. Someone or, you know, some group of people are notably absent. Last week, we looked at the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14. And it, the, the people who were missing were those who had been invited, those who said they were going to be there. Jesus tells that parable to sort of check our assumptions about how deeply do we value the hospitality and the mercy and the invitation God has offered us to come and, and eat around his table. And how, how fully aware are we of those we're meant to share in that feast together with? Today's passage in Luke 15, uh, again, takes place. It's a story Jesus tells at another meal. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and, and in some village along the way, the Pharisees and teachers of the law notice that Jesus, yet again, is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they're upset by this. And they begin to grumble among themselves. And so Jesus turns to this story to help them see what's missing. Let me pray for us as we listen to the word of God together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have a table that is better and bigger and more welcoming than we often have the ability to, to perceive and understand. But Lord, I pray that as I preach the, this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations, may the convictions of, of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Is, I'm going to jump in at verse 11, or I, I guess it's verse 12 here. This is actually the third part of this story. There are two micro-stories that precede this, and they're all stories about missing or lost things. The beginning of Luke 15, we're, we're told a story about a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but one has gone missing. And the shepherd leaves the 99 behind to go out and find the one that has gone astray. And he, he rejoices in, in finding that lost one. Then Jesus tells another brief story about a woman who has lost a coin that is precious to her. 
and how she searches all over her house. She sweeps the floor. She gets down on her hands and knees until she finds that lost coin. And she even calls her neighbors to rejoice with her in the recovery of that lost, lost item. And so now Jesus tells a third story, and it's the story of a lost son. Let me start in verses 11, 12, and following. Jesus continued these stories by saying, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between the sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. This is probably a, a parable or a story that is quite familiar to us. Often we, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Sometimes it might be referred to as the, the parable of, of the lost son or the two sons. But this morning I'd like us to, to read and think about this story as a story about a father's table. One of the the places that I most fully and strongly sense a a kind of togetherness with my family is when we're sitting together around the dinner table. It's also, when you have young kids, a place of (laughs) distress and difficulty and aggravation as well. But there's something about those moments when you're all talking and and eating and hopefully laughing together that that creates that deep feeling of, of belonging of location, of of being known by one another. But by the same measure, it's also the same place when when a a family member is not there. For example, this weekend, Katie and our two girls are are traveling to a family wedding. And so when Asher and I have sat down for meals, it's, it's been nice to catch up with the two of us. But you can notice, right, there's something different. There are people missing, right? Absences are also noticed around the dinner table. And so here at the start of Jesus' story in Luke 15, we have a father with his two sons. And we know that that these two sons would have shared in the the labors of the father's household, in in the farm, in the fields, and the hard work. But also they would have known the privilege of eating around the family table as well. And so we could assume this, this went on for, for years and years. You know, we don't know how old the two sons are here until one night the younger of these two sons arrives perhaps at the dinner table to make an announcement. And he drops sort of two bombshells at once on his father there at the table. The first is that He'd like the father to sell off some of the land, maybe a few of the fields that belong to the family, so that he can cash in early on his inheritance. Rather than than waiting for that land to come to him, he'd like it now. And he says he'd like it now because we, we soon see, number two, that he has plans to move out, to move on with his life. To, to, to some place, God knows where, where he is going to experience what verse 13 calls wild living. 
And so, just like that, this seat that the younger son has occupied there around the father's table. For hundreds, if not thousands, of family gatherings before this one, now sits empty. And so, so each night thereafter, the, the son is out finding his own meal each night, buying his dinner at some new table in a faraway place. And the father remains there, right, looking at that empty seat with longing right, for, the, for the son that he has lost. But we see it doesn't take long in Jesus' story for this son to run out of new tables to eat at. And in verse 14, Jesus continues. He said, after the son had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that faraway country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. It doesn't take long for the son to discover hunger for the first time. I wonder for, for those of us who are, are more grown up in the, in the sanctuary this morning, can you remember the first time that you had a real sense of appreciation for the family you grew up in, the household you grew up in, the meals that you shared in your, your parents' house, and how good you had it all those years without fully realizing it. Maybe it was the, the first few cafeteria meals you had to eat at college. Maybe it was being sent away to a summer camp. Maybe it was one of the first times you came home to an empty apartment and had to, to cook for yourself if you can count microwaving a Hot Pocket as cooking for yourself. And you discovered how incredibly gracious your parents had been to you. In Jesus' story, again, it doesn't take long for this young man to discover for probably the first time in his life what it feels like to be hungry. Verse 14 says, it came to the place where he had spent everything he possessed. All of that inheritance that had come to him. And the land in which he was living came under a severe famine and he began to be in need. And so recognizing he has a problem, his initial approach is to try to find a way to fix the problem. And so he hires himself out to someone there, a citizen, probably someone of reputation and standing and wealth in that country. Perhaps it was a man like his father, 
But it turns out that as he comes into the employment of this, this man, he doesn't set an extra place for him around the family table. But instead, he is sent out to the fields to feed these carob pods to the pigs. And after a while, the pods, the pig food, begins to look appetizing to him because his hunger is so great. But his wages are so small that he can't even afford to eat what the pigs are eating. And by the end of verse 16, his, his stomach, his resources, everything have run empty. And Luke says, he was utterly alone and no one gave him anything. wonder if you've ever felt that kind of lostness, that kind of aloneness. wonder if you've ever arrived at a place in your life where you felt like the only person left caring for you was yourself. Right? And hunger and, and loneliness together are, are a powerful combination. And they can lead us quickly to the place of despair. And there's, there's little we possess in that, that place of emptiness and despair. But there in, in this faraway country, on the day of his greatest hunger, we're told that this young man still possesses one thing of value. What he possesses is the memory of his empty seat back at his father's table back in his father's house. We're told in verse 17 that that memory of what it was like to eat around his father's table and the people gathered around that table together with his family. Luke says they bring him to his senses. And so he gets up and he begins the long journey home. Again, I think it's, it's helpful sometimes to read familiar stories with a different lens. And often in the commentaries about this particular parable, there, there are big debates at this section about, about sort of what's going on within the son. Is he experiencing true remorse here? Does he feel deep contrition for his sort of profligate hedonism? Is the son trying to save himself? It's hard, it's hard to know. Right? The parable doesn't tell us. But I think the one thing the parable does tell us is that when this young man feels most alone, most desperate, most lost, what speaks to him and, and awakens him is his hunger. Right? His, his stomach in this story is what serves almost like a homing beacon. And that, that craving both for, for food and, and for the people around that table that memory of, of even what the lowest servants in his father's household enjoyed at his father's table. It's enough to put him on his feet and to draw him back home. So I think we can ask, well, what do we do with that? Where do we put that in our theology? Where do we put that in our picture of of God, our Heavenly Father, of, of whom this parable is, is being told. The God that we pray to for our daily bread. 
Do we, do we believe, do we have a strong enough picture of what it's like to be around his table that it, it awakens a hunger within us? Right? We're confident in the, in the goodness and the richness of that table. That it might draw us back. And if not, maybe, maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're deficient in our picture of who God is and what he's like. Maybe we're missing something. So the son is on his way back, and Jesus continues the story, second half of verse 20. It says, But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And so he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I love the the image Jesus paints for us in verse 20 of the father. Spying the son while he was still a long way off. And I, I, I like to imagine a kind of ritual maybe that had played out there over the days and months and maybe years the son was away. Whereas the table was being set each night for dinner, the the father would go out to the edge of the field and look on the road, would watch the horizon, to see if, if somehow, if some way, his son might again return and take and fill up that empty space at the table. And we could imagine that ritual continuing day after day, month after month, year after year, waiting and longing and hungering until finally this day arrives. And the the hunger of the father for his son's return is is now matched by the the hunger pains of the lost son's stomach. And their, their hunger, kind of pulling in the same direction, unites them in this incredible moment of embrace. But it's an embrace that lasts for only a few moments before it's cut short in verse 21. And and the son begins into a kind of shame-filled confession. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The best this son can hope for is, is to be hired back as a hired hand. I think we, we see in that speech the shame that he carries. And shame is one of the most powerful, one of the most destructive tools available to the enemy of our souls. Right? Shame whispers to us that, that our failures in the past will dictate our future. Right? Shame insinuates to us that it's possible to lose ourselves, lose our identity 
lose our worth to simply be loved. But look at how the father responds to his shame in verse 22. The father breaks off in mid-speech. He, he silences his shame by wrapping him up in the garments, in the clothing of sonship. He puts on the son the best robe he has. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts new sandals on his feet. So that as quickly as possible, his son is dressed and ready for what's about to happen next. The father says, let's have a feast and celebrate. Right? The father's greatest desire is to get him back at the table, put him back in that empty seat. The moment of, of the son's salvation is when he is joined back around that meal with all of those who he had been lost to. And I think as, as the body of Christ, we need those kind of experiences too. To, to mediate, to, to embody salvation for us. To eat and drink with brothers and sisters. To know that we are worth being loved. In those, in those moments and meals, to silence the voice of shame with the voice of laughter and warmth and gospel around the table and a good meal. And so we see there was someone missing at the table and has come back into the Father's presence. But now as the feasting begins, the Father notices there is another seat conspicuously empty. Look at verses 25 and following. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus' story finishes with, with tension, with separation. All right, with, with two very different scenes playing out simultaneously. Verses 25 through 27 describe an atmosphere of, of excitement and celebration and levity. Right, the recovery of what was lost and, and the easing of that burden. But in verse 28, 
we see things don't go over so well with the older son, who remains hard at work in the field. And the news of his brother's return, we're told, sparks anger and it sparks resentment in him. And these are things that block him from returning to the table. Right, as long as his brother sits there. Right, the one who caused the the family all of that pain. The one who brought heartache to him, who, who, who brought extra work for him, who took away a portion of the family's land. As long as the son, with all of his selfish insensitivity, sits at his father's table. This more principled older brother is going to deny him the dignity of his presence, the dignity of his company. How many of us have done this same thing? How many of us have felt this same way? Right? When somebody hurts us, we can decide that the best way to get revenge is to deny that person a chance to reconcile. Deny that person even the, the availability of a conversation, the acknowledgement of their existence. And in doing so, we hope that they feel the same sting of rejection that we felt. And I know I've, I've wrestled with this. Family conversations and friendships. But notice that as the son is processing all of this, the father doesn't just stand by. Right? For, for years he grieved the absence of one son. And now he sees the other son disappearing in the same way. And so in verse 28 we're told the father leaves his table. It says he goes out into the fields and he pleads with the older brother to reconcile. But the son's own words are telling. He sees himself. He sees his place in the household. He sees his identity as a slave in his father's household. He says he is unseen. He says he is unappreciated. As writer Michael Card suggests, he has become a slave to his own bitterness. And it has, it has caused him to now hate the generosity of his father. For the older son, mercy has now become offensive to him. And in the field there, he demands that the father give him an accounting for his actions. But look at the father's reply, verses 31 and 32. The father doesn't give a rationale for mercy. The father doesn't have a a ledger to refer to for which son deserves what treatment. The father simply says, everything I possess, every goat and calf, every stick of furniture, every bottle of wine in our cellar, all of it belongs to you also. And he says, these things exist so that that we might have, so that I might share a, a reconciling and welcoming table for my family. 
All of these things are possessed and are, are tangible demonstrations of a kind of love that, that can bring the dead back to life. A kind of love that can turn an enemy into a family member. A kind of love that insists on making servants into sons and daughters. And like many of Jesus' stories, that's where things end, in intention, without resolution, without the details of what happens next. The tension between the older son's bitterness and the father's invitation to feast on mercy sort of left gnawing at us. So let me offer you one, I think, pretty simple but realistically very difficult question or bit of homework from this story. Who's missing around our tables? Who is it that we have been too hurt by, too angry at, too bitter with to share a table? Who is it that, that when you imagine God welcoming them or, or wrapping his arms of mercy and affirmation and welcome around causes you pain, causes you anger, causes you to, to pull back? Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's someone here that's hurt you. Jesus tells this story so that we might understand that his table, his gospel, all the resources of his kingdom exist so that we might be brought back to that table together. So that the lost might be found and the dead returned to life. Is that something we desire to share in? We pray, pray for me and pray for us in that calling. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, as we gather on a Sunday morning as the the visible demonstration of of your church and your body, would you convict us? Would you create hunger in us to be rejoined to those who are missing from our welcome, from our love, from our presence. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.